This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Well, isn't it a pleasure to be here once again? Uh, you may be expecting another voice, but this is the voice you're hearing tonight. My name is Victor Vigiani, and I'm sitting in for Richard Serrett, who's uh, off in a little bit of a timeout, weekend off, uh, spending time with his family, and we're going to take you into the netherland of whatever comes next in this crazy field of, um, I guess, off-world civilizations in our first hour. And uh, just glad to have you with us. And it'll be a pleasure to uh, uh, to have your company for the next hour or so. Uh, before we begin, I would like to point out that, uh, and Richard's asked me to make a point of this too for this evening, they want to welcome one of our new affiliates, KFLD AM 87 0870 Yakima, Washington, one of the new affiliates that uh, the Conspiracy Show has taken on over the past little while. I think that brings it up probably to about, uh, oh, I'd say almost 20 affiliates that we've got working with us now. And we're just so glad to have that many people um, involved in the pursuit of listening listening to The Conspiracy Show and making sure that, you know, we stay on top of things and that uh, you do too. So one of the ways that we do that is each Sunday evening we broadcast all kinds of strange and mysterious things here on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And I have the pleasure on the odd occasion to guest host with him. Uh, generally speaking, I, I do things with respect to the UFO issue. Um, I, I have dabbled in other areas, but through his guidance this evening, he's uh, allowed me the uh, the good fortune to to speak about the UFO issue the, during this first hour. And I want to welcome you all to that. Um, I suppose that you know when you start talking about this UFO issue, and really, there's no other way to to call it. There's a lot of different things you can say about it. You can call it the UFO ET issue. You can call it off-world civilization. You can, it really doesn't matter what you call it. The fact of the matter is that it is something very, very strange and very, very bizarre that we're trying to figure out exactly what's going on. And through my research over the past 35 years or so, um, I don't have any definite answers. I have a lot of opinions about it, but uh, there's really not a whole lot that I know for sure. And the one darn good thing that I know for sure is that when we do find out what the heck is going on in our skies with respect to this issue, 
it could very, very well be something totally different than, uh, than we expect it to be. And once again, too, there's many individuals in this field who we can speak to uh, that have all kinds of expertise in the area. And uh, there's people who value sightings, uh, sighting reports. Uh, they delve into uh, abduction phenomenon. They deal with the crop circle phenomenon. Uh, this evening, we are going to delve into a completely um, different area as far as I'm concerned. And one of the greatest researchers that I've had the pleasure of uh, listening to and watching and, and following over the past little while is uh, a lady named Linda Moulton Howe. And Linda is a graduate of Stanford University with a master's degree in communication. She has devoted her documentary film, television, and radio writing to the production of concerns of science, medicine, and the environment. Linda has received local, national, and international awards, including three regional Emmys, a National Emmy nomination, and a Station Peabody Award in medical programming. Linda has also uh, been involved in documentaries. They've included A Strange Harvest, which we'll talk about tonight a little bit, uh, little bit more, and also A Prairie Dawn, focused on astronaut training in Denver. She's also produced documentaries on Ethiopia and Mexico for UNICEF. So without any further ado, uh, we could probably extend that, uh, that bio reading for another 15 or 20 minutes. Uh, Linda, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here, and I thought I would at least start uh, with a quote that goes to the heart of what you have raised to me and to the audience mm -hmm. about what is uh, the truth to uh, some of the UFO phenomena, and that is... Back in 1979, September, when I was director of special projects at the CBS station in Denver, and my job was to do documentaries about science environmental issues in Colorado and the United States and the world, that there was an uptick in all of the strange, bloodless, trackless animal mutilations, not only in Colorado, but throughout the Rocky Mountains, including Canada. There were a whole, there was hundreds actually, uh, in uh, British Columbia and Alberta and uh, that whole area of Canada. And so I thought, as an environmental issue, I was going to get to the bottom of what was happening with all these animals with the same patterns of bloodless excisions. And what baffled law enforcement, as I was beginning to learn, was that there were rarely tracks around the bodies of the mutilated animals, and that included no tracks of the animal, leaving sheriffs and deputies and others to say, well, how did the animal even get to the location where it was found dead with these strange bloodless excisions, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes on their back with legs up in the air? And, of course, what law enforcement concluded is that whatever was doing this was coming from the air or lifting these animals, and that goes to the heart of the quote from the, uh, he was Sheriff Tex Graves of Logan County, Colorado, for I think 23 or 25 years when I first met him in September of 1979 up in Sterling, Colorado. He was the very first law enforcement person that I went to as I started on the production of what became A Strange Harvest, the 90-minute uh, special on TV. And he showed me 266 color Polaroid photos that he had taken in the, his work 
uh, in the sheriff's office of all of these mutilated animals, strange and bloodless and trackless, and he was giving me an orientation through these Polaroids. And suddenly he looked at me and he said, Linda, I'll save you some time. The perpetrators of these animal mutilations are creatures from outer space. And I still remember, it was as if I were hit by an electrical cord or shock. I was not prepared for that to be the answer right at the beginning of my investigation. But nine months later, after having worked literally 18 hours a day, seven days a week, without let-up for nine months, in traveling and filming and interviewing and editing and having uh, the crew and I having strange experiences with odd lights and all kinds of things that happened. A Strange Harvest was broadcast on May 25, 1980. It was the largest audience in the state of Colorado uh, for, um, at that time, for anything that had been produced mm -hmm. in the local stations. And the reason uh, that I'm coming to is because I realized as mail started coming in, there were no computers then and there were no faxes. It was either typed or handwritten mail or phone calls. Uh, the switchboard could not keep up with the phone calls. The mail room was dragging literally bags up to my office at the CBS station in Denver and those bags constituted, uh, in I remember one week's time, we counted up over a thousand letters. And they were coming from literally all over the world. And most of them were saying, I've never told anyone this before, but, but and yeah. it was. Yeah. Do, do you think saying that yeah. they had seen animals rise in beams of light mm -hmm. into a glowing object in the mm -hmm. sky or be lowered in the beams of light down to the ground where they would then find them dead and mutilated. And t this today, uh, I had just got back from a trip from uh, Los Angeles uh, yesterday uh, where I was working uh, on the sixth season with ancient aliens in L.A., and one of the subjects that they're addressing will be animal mutilations. And I come back, and there is an email from somebody telling me I have heard you on the radio, I have looked at Earth Files, and you have mentioned animals rising in beams of light or being lowered to the ground and being found mutilated. And this is a woman, and she said, I saw one of these cattle being raised in a beam of light with my own eyes in the 1970s, and she's going to give me more in information, and I'm just saying, this is the reality of the facts, whether or not people have been exposed to them much or not. Uh, how, what was your background before you got into all of this? I mean, you must have sort of led into it in a way that um, it somehow introduced you to it, or did it just, you know, did you just trip over the issue, or, or how did that happen? I did my graduate work, my master's degree at Stanford University in Palo Alto, California, where I got a master's degree in communications uh, working on documentary films with the Stanford Medical Center and the Stanford Linear Accelerator. In fact, my master's degree film was with the Stanford Linear Accelerator right at the time that they were beginning to try to get rudimentary uh, uh, computers. Uh, I was at Stanford from 1966 to 68, graduated in 68, and during those two years they were trying to get 
computers to analyze the bombardment patterns so that humans would not have to do all of that laborious mm-hmm. labor. And that's what my film was about. And I was hired by KNBC in Los Angeles to work as a hard news reporter. I covered everything. And from there, I was asked if I would uh, work in documentaries. And soon I had my own program that I was producing out of the East Coast, the West Coast, and uh, Los Angeles, again, having to do with environmental, medical, and science subjects. And I was married, and my husband uh, at the time uh, was accepted to Harvard for a, a degree process there. And so I was hired from KNBC to ABC in Boston. There I did all of their medical programming. I did science programming. I was awarded uh, as a producer in a Peabody there. Mm -hmm. So my work in science, medicine, and the environment kept being solidified. My uh, then-husband was hired uh, to head a video company's effort in Denver, Colorado, and I was hired from Boston to Denver to head their uh, special projects. Well, that's terrific. Now, okay, I'll have, to, I'll have to hold to you there. It? I'll have to hold you there, Linda. We're going to take a break, yeah. okay? Thank you. Yeah, just stay with us. Uh, my name is Victor Vigiani, and you're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Good evening, and welcome back. My name is Victor Vigiani, and you're listening to The Conspiracy Show. Uh, once again, Richard is off on a well-deserved rest, and we're sort of filling in for him. And we have on the line from her home in Albuquerque, New Mexico, Linda Moulton Howe, researcher and, uh, I guess, a documentary uh, producer in, uh, in many, many different ways of many, many different aspects of the UFO issue. Uh, we've got her on the line now, and she's just been explaining to us a little bit about the um, animal mutilation. Uh, Linda, you know what I'd like to do is uh, I've done a, my first reading of the book of, of Alien Harvest back w- when you first put it out. And one of the things that I was absolutely intrigued about was the kind of incisions. I mean, I guess we're getting a little specific here now. Was the kinds of incisions that were made with these animals and, you know, be they horses or cows or whatever they were. And the, the incisions were made in such a way that... Um, there, there was no bloodletting, um, and they were they were sort of cauterized to a point where there was very little cell disruption. It wasn't like there was a cut. There was something very specific done. Uh, what are the kinds of theories that you've uncovered that may explain some of the kinds of incisions that that you've seen? Well, uh, your listeners can see uh, hundreds, literally, of photographs that I have accumulated in what I have been doing. Uh, almost full-time the last uh, 14 years, and that is I report, edit, and produce earthfiles.com. It is a news website that is focused on science, the environment, and real X-Files. While I have also done more documentaries and lots and lots of radio and all kinds of other things, Earth Files today might be the largest encyclopedia of what you're describing, and that is what is the physical evidence in the animal mutilations that has been documented in a phenomena that goes back at least a 100 years. When I started on A Strange Harvest, I talked with a producer in London at the BBC trying to find out 
what in Europe the BBC had investigated in terms of animal mutilations and the types of excisions that you're talking about I'm going to go into. But I think it's important to set the facts on the landscape and how large in time this phenomena is. And the BBC had had a journal in its own work looking at unusual and bloodless animal deaths in England. And the producer told me that they were actually trying to find a journal that they'd had in research on a program that went back to 1911, 104 sheep found on an Australian billabong with ear missing, eye, tongue, jaw, genitals, and rectum cord out, 104 sheep, no tracks around any of the animals' bodies, including not the animals' own tracks, and no blood on any of the white hair. Now, how is this possible? Jump to all of the work that I did with veterinarian pathologists and a hematologist pathologist in Denver, Dr. John Altshuler, and many of these photographs and our laboratory work and other documentation have been included in the four books that I've done, the documentaries that I've done, and now it's, uh, I think it's about 2,200 reports representing 50,000 images, illustrations, and documents at Mm earthfiles.com. And in that work, there are uh, photographs of what are called serrated edges. For any of your listeners who may ever have used pinking shears on cloth, uh, cutting patterns to sew a dress or a shirt or something, the pinking shear leaves a kind of triangular pattern, meaning it's a lot of uh, pointed edges. And when you go to a lot of the photographs that I have in my books, the documentaries and earthfiles.com, you will see the serrated edge as recently as uh, June, July to August 1st in Montana, or sorry, in uh, Hagler, Nebraska. Uh, I've been dealing with a tremendous number of mutilations in 2013 from England throughout the United States and Argentina. And one of the most interesting in Hagler, Nebraska, is a rancher, Alex Peterson, who has had five unusual animal deaths since mid-June up to the August 5th. And he is, of those five, three were mutilated heifers uh, or mutilated, yeah, I think they were all young, and uh, they were pregnant. And one of them that was found on August 1st just absolutely, uh, completely stunned this rancher. It was one of his pregnant cows. Now he's already had two pregnant cows mutilated, but this one, I have photographs at Earth Files that show how extraordinary this is. This big, heavy, pregnant cow was found with her head dropped into a narrow hole in the pasture. In the bottom of the hole, there were spider webs. And as Alex Peterson said to me, Linda, when we finally got her pulled out, they had to get a tractor hooked up with ropes. There was not one hole or damage to any of those spider webs, which means that she was dropped into the hole dead. There was no breathing. There was no slobbering. She was dead, and her head was going into this tight hole up to her ears. Her ears could not go down into the hole. And so you're looking at photographs of a large, pregnant, basically black-colored cow with its body flopped 
uh, away from the front of its head down in this hole, and it had removal of tissue from the head and a very neat circle of excision of uh, rectal and vaginal tissue, again, bloodless, from the back of this animal. And in all of the cases in the Hagler, Nebraska, uh, approximately from uh, the middle of June to August 5th, so about seven weeks of five unusual animal deaths, two not pregnant, that you have the classic signatures no blood, no tracks, and leaving Alex Peterson when I first talked to him to say that he and other uh, ranchers had heard about the possibility that extraterrestrial biological entities had been harvesting from uh, animals around this planet for a long time, and he wanted to know what I thought. And I said, that's exactly what law enforcement told me in September of 1979, but when I would say, as director of special projects at the CBS station in Denver, would you please tell me that on camera so that I can use it in my documentary for television, and sheriffs and deputies would say, no, you'll have to find somebody else, but that is the truth. We know we're dealing with creatures from outer space. And to just reinforce this, I want to share two pieces that are so important and that a lot of people don't know. When I was producing A Strange Harvest, starting in September of 79 until the broadcast on May 25, 1980, there had been these strange bloodless, trackless mutilations of, of, this is cattle, this is horses, goats, sheep, pigs, rabbits, dogs, cats. Uh, I've seen uh, federal... Uh, Forest Service and State Forest Service photographs of mutilated deer, elk, marmots. So it's a wide gamut. Mm -hmm. And in Canada, up in Calgary, uh, Lynn Lauber, L-Y-N-N-L-A-U-B-E-R, he was heading the investigation for the Royal Canadian Mounted Police on animal mutilation specifically. And they had in Calgary had uh, leaked or, or made it pretend like it was a leak to a reporter who kept running stories about how all these uh, animals in the Calgary, British Columbia area were the product of a satanic cult called O, the letter O. Well, here's the truth. My uh, documentary, A Strange Harvest, a 90-minute special, was broadcast the night of May 25, 1980. Within two weeks of that broadcast, I got a phone call from Lynn Lauber, head of uh, one of the RCMP divisions investigating animal mutilations. He said that he had gotten a copy of my documentary in the broadcast and had watched it. And I remember him saying, Miss Howe, I know that what you have reported is accurate. Well, that made me say, well, sir, I'm reporting extraterrestrial uh, biological entities. He said, yes, we know that's the truth. I said, but you, you uh, the RCMP and the media in British Columbia have been reporting that it <clears throat> is a satanic cult named O. <clears throat> Sorry, I've been suffering uh, allergies and a cold. Mm -hmm. uh, and he said, this was a quote to me, 
director of special projects at the CBS station in Denver from the head of animal mutilation investigations in British Columbia, Canada. He said, yes, we wanted to get the public and the media off our backs, and it is easier for us to operate with everybody looking for satanic cults instead of extra. So, so how, how can they possibly justify this kind of rationale or explanation when it's quite clear that there, there is a, a very, uh, very clear other explanation? Now, you know, the RCMP here in Canada, I, I'm, you know, familiar with some of the work that they've done with respect to the UFO phenomenon, and they dare not make a link uh, with the UFO phenomenon indirectly. In they, they will not uh, speak about it. They will not espouse any information about it. You know, they will remain close-lipped. Now, what do you if, understand? I'm yeah. <laughs> telling you about a private phone conversation from your uh, British Columbia Calgary RCMP investigator of mutilations in 79 to 80, who is calling me after the broadcast of my documentary, A Strange Harvest, to tell me that he knows that what I have reported is true, even though it contradicts their own information to the media, as he's explaining that they pushed the satanic cult answer to the media that ran with it, knowing that the RCMP knew they were using an excuse that was not true to get the public and the media off their back. He's not saying that to me on the camera. He's talking to me in a phone call to the TV station where I worked to tell me that. And he and I actually exchanged information about certain aspects of animal mutilations, which he asked me to keep secret, that I already knew, Mm -hmm. photographed and documented, and he asked me specifically if he shared things that they were investigating and that I wouldn't report them for a while because in Canada they were trying to keep certain details away, and I honored that for some time. And this is the, what I'm, my point is, is, This is not the first time. This happened in the United States. Uh, For people who can remember back in uh, the 79 to 80 period that there was an alleged investigation by a man named Kenneth Rommel, R-O-M-M-E-L. And he, there was a big fanfare in newspapers about how Kenneth Rommel, uh, head of, uh, uh, it, it was an investigative division in the district attorney's office, I believe, in Raton, New Mexico, and that he had formerly worked for the FBI, and he was getting a $119,000 grant uh, to study animal mutilations and make a formal report. Well, I went to see Mr. Rommel uh, in uh, October of 1979, late September, somewhere right in there, at the beginning of the production on my documentary, A Strange Harvest. And by then, I already had veterinarian pathology reports about the fact that the excisions in many of these animals with the serrated cuts had been done with something of high heat. And I had data to to show him at the beginning of his investigation. And when I was sitting across from him before the camera was ready to roll, he said to me, I'm going to prove that there is nothing to these animal mutilations except predator. And he's saying this to me as 
a reporter and a TV producer before we've even done the interview. Mm-hmm. And when I presented to him during the interview the hard data that had come from CSU and, and pathologists, he did not even want to look at the photos or the documentation. It was then very clear to me he was being given money to whitewash the fact that the animal mutilations were being done by extraterrestrials and that our government, in a variety of ways, wanted to muddy the waters. And so his was the first volley, and it came out uh, in a big interview of all places, Penthouse Magazine, that Romney did an interview with this magazine about how there was nothing to animal mutilations and that one of his proofs was not only in New Mexico and Colorado that it was just predator, but that in uh, Bentonville, Arkansas, that there, the sheriff's office had purchased the cow, put it out in a field, had a star scope trained on it, and they, they were proving that there was nothing to it but foxes and crows and things like that. <laughs> of well, course. Well, that's, okay. that's quite easily to, to explain that way. Okay, um, but there's uh, yeah. something critical here. Okay, on the, other, on the other side of our break. What, we'll, I, what yeah. I learned from Linda, the veterinarian Linda. working with that sheriff's office, and I can tell you or not, but I'm just... Yeah. Okay, we'll, just, we'll come back with Linda in a moment. Uh, we'll just take a break now. You're listening to The Richard Serrett Show. My name is Victor Vigiani. Should be presented in a formal, executive, official, congressional hearing. Why has the agencies of the United States government, the Department of Justice, the FBI, the CIA, the NSA, the DIA, the NRO, they've all been studying this. They have more data than I do. Why shouldn't this country get back on the track of being of and by and for the people? That, of course, is the voice of Linda Moulton Howe, our guest this evening, speaking to us from her home in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I can barely understand it because it was so echoey. <laughs> well, we tried to capture you a little bit different that time, and it was part of your part of your um, of your, uh, I guess, your dissertation at the at the hearings. But uh, yeah, oh, at the citizen hearing. That's right. Yeah. Uh, what I what I wanted to. Um, well, it's so important yeah. if we don't talk about anything else that I end up telling you what happened. Uh, after all of the Rommel report, okay, sure, yeah, go ahead, take off the, on that. Yeah, uh, for sure. House article saying uh, through Rommel that it was all predator and that the Bentonville uh, Sheriff's Office had proved it. Okay, that was 1980. Jump to around 2001, and I am working and living in Philadelphia. Pennsylvania. And one afternoon, uh, the phone rang, and it was a man who introduced himself by full name, a veterinarian, living and working in Bentonville, Arkansas. Mm -hmm. And he said, I have retired, and I have thought of you so many times, Linda. He said, I privately have known how accurate your work and your reporting is, and that's why I decided in retirement I had to call and tell you that when the Rommel report, the the Rorvik article in Penthouse, and the alleged proof of the Bentonville County Sheriff's Office 
about Predator and the so-called Starscope was uh, put out in the spring of around 1980 at the same time that your documentary, A Strange Harvest, came out, he said, I knew for a fact that the Bentonville County Sheriff's Office was using me, hiring me, to do the actual necropsies on mutilated animal after mutilated animal. And he said, Linda, there would be no surgical excisions on the bodies of these animals. But when I went in to do the necropsy, I would find that an entire bladder was missing without any excisions and that there was no evidence of surgery of a scalpel. Um, he, he went on and told me that half a dozen animals, he had found the missing organs inside, and I told him that how grateful I was because in the very first discussion that I had with Sheriff Tex Graves up in Logan County and Sterling in that first trip up there in September of 79, when he told me the perpetrators were creatures from outer space, he told me that, the, that he took a veterinarian out to the first mutilated cow that he found and was stunned by because there was no blood, no tracks around her. And when the veterinarian went into that first mutilation, which goes back to, I think it was 1972 or 73 for Sheriff Graves, he said the veterinarian looked up and said to the sheriff, there is no heart here. The pericardium, the transparent sac that surrounds the heart of a cow, just like we have a sort of pericardium around our heart. He said the pericardium is in here. There's no blood. There's no fluid. There's no clotted blood anywhere. The pericardium is collapsed in the chest. There's no heart. The heart in a full-grown adult uh, cow is around 7 inches by 9 inches by 11 inches. It's huge. And the veterinarian said to Sheriff Graves, I have no idea how you would get out of an animal through the rib cage or any other direction, a heart without leaving any signs of any excision anywhere, let alone how would you get the heart out of the pericardium without a tear or a cut. I took exactly that case and all that Sheriff Graves told me to Arlen Myers, an MD who was experimenting at the time in 79 at Rose Medical Center in Denver with lasers. He was the head of the laser research department. I took the photographs, I took the reports that I had, and when Arlen Myers was looking at these photographs and we were discussing the necropsy that Sheriff Graves had told me about with the missing heart, Arlen Myers said to me, you know, that has been one of my goals in my life. I've been hoping that eventually, in, and at that time I was interviewing him in 79, he said, my goal has been that in approximately 30, 35 years, I hoped in my lifetime that we could develop molecule-specific laser surgery that would go through skin, cartilage, muscle, bone, would interact only with the molecular structure of a heart, of a liver, of a kidney, leaving no trauma to the body, that they could excise tumors or do whatever was necessary, and it would be molecule-specific. And he said, what you have here, Linda, in these animal mutilations reminds me of my own goal for future 
surgery. Well, let me tell you something. All of the that you're talking about begs the question why. And on the other side of the break, I'd really like to address the whole issue of why this is happening. So uh, we're talking to Linda Moulton Howe, and on the other side of the break, we're going to try to find out if she has any thoughts about why all of this is happening. Stay with us. You're listening to The Richard Serrett Show. Something is very wrong in the underbelly of this country that I think is related directly to a policy of denial from World War II about the fact that extraterrestrial biological entities, to use our government's own phrase and its own alleged documents, are interacting with this planet, have been for centuries, and that there is an intimate relationship between what we are and what they made. And that might explain why there's no wholesale evidence anywhere that the non-humans want to kill humans. They want, it appears, from my point of view as an investigative reporter talking with so many people, that there is an ongoing research program about what is happening on this planet in the surface life on Earth. Just before the break, uh, we were speaking with Linda Moulton Howe regarding the kinds of incisions that have been made in, in these... Um, so-called animal mutilations and I was just about to ask you Linda as you alluded to in the in the clip as to why all this is happening you in the clip you alluded to the you know overall program of research here on the planet Um, have you or others come up with possible theories as to what what possible rationale could be used by the by the off-world civilizations the ETs for doing what they're doing can you give us shed, shed some light on that for us Uh, In that uh, excerpt from the uh, testimony I was giving as an investigative reporter in Washington, D.C. at the National Press Press Club in the first week of May this year, I'm referencing the uh, going back to 1983, April 9th. I had been contracted with Home Box Office to produce an hour for HBO The working title was UFOs, the ET Factor. Uh, HBO came to me because they had screened A Strange Harvest, the documentary I was talking about, and they wanted me to do an hour that would go beyond A Strange Harvest uh, and include animal mutilations, but go into sort of the question you're asking into other aspects. And in the process of my doing, beginning to do the script, uh, Peter Gersten, who was an attorney in New York, had been hired by the Center for UFO Secrecy, QFOS. Uh, uh, he was a police officer, I think, from Connecticut originally, Larry Fawcett. And they uh, were the very first organization related to uh, trying to understand what's going on with the UFO phenomena to file in the United States a Freedom of Information Act that did not become law until around 1976-77, right in there. So Peter Gersten filed a FOIA request to military operations, all of the known alphabet soup intelligence agencies in the United States, and to sum up a long deal that ended up finally breaking from the Supreme Court and being publicized in Time Magazine and Newsweek and the New York Times and everything in January of 1980, he started getting 
replies from intelligence agencies saying, we don't have any UFO reports, but we know that the National Security Agency has 118. So intel agencies were pointing fingers at other intel agencies, and that was perfect. He could then send those letters to the agencies that were being fingered, and pretty soon he had a tremendous file, and they were able to get all the way to the Supreme Court for the now-famous historic in-camera session in which all of the intel agencies were arguing that they could not reveal uh, the uh, documentation related to the Citizens Against UFO Secrecy because it would threaten national security without explaining why and what was released from that famous uh, FOIA case with uh, Citizens Against UFO Secrecy were dozens of black, all-black pages, which Stanton Friedman then used in, often in his career. Now, this is the same attorney who set up a meeting for me at Kirtland Air Force Base because he, Peter Gersten, after all of this FOIA and Supreme Court and all of that work, had been, had been receiving correspondence from a variety of people who appeared to be whistleblowers. They were either in military or something, and one of them was at Kirtland Air Force Base in Albuquerque, and Gersten said, it was made a great deal of sense, uh, you're starting out on the HBO documentary, uh, Citizens Against UFO Secrecy and I want to explore the famous case at Ellsworth Air Force Base when there was an alleged uh, exchange of weaponry between non-humans and military um, we've got somebody at Kirtland who says they have information that they are now prepared uh, to deliver on some of this background on witnesses and so forth. You go there. Uh, we will uh, go to South Dakota, and you can use this as an area of an actual, uh, actual uh, investigation that you can film. It'll be in your HBO. That's the behind the scenes of how I came to go to Kirtland Air Force Base thinking that I was going to get names, addresses, and details about this military-like exchange with extraterrestrials in a craft at Ellsworth Air Force Base in 1978. So when we go throughout all these punch doors and secrecy and all of this stuff and end up in an office where I think I'll be there for 20 minutes and out, the, uh, the man... Uh, who is now in the office and at this desk, says my superior officers have asked me to show this to you, and he pulled out a manila envelope, pulled out a file, had about a dozen pages in it, and he said, I've been asked to show this to you. You can read it. You cannot take notes, and I want you to move from where you are to that chair in the middle of the room. And all of that was very confusing and baffling because I was sitting at a chair where anybody normally in conversation would sit. And I was so green and innocent and naive that at that moment it did not occur to me that he was directing me to sit in a chair that was videotaped, audiotaped, still photographed. I was completely 100% monitored from then on. And that what I read was a summary for uh, uh, the, the top page, all caps, 
said, briefing paper for the President of the United States of America, and it was that formal, on the subject of unidentified aerial craft, UACs, and throughout the document, the acronym, (coughs) the acronym Unidentified Aerial Vehicles or Unidentified Aerial Craft uh, were used interchangeably, and the word or the acronym UFOs or UFOBs was not used in this document. And when I began reading the first page, it went into the history of retrievals, uh, sightings, the Mantell case, uh, uh, the Robertson panel, grudge, sign, all of the history. And then it got to a page where it started summarizing how the United States government had retrieved craft and extraterrestrial biological entities, both dead and alive, from a variety of locations. It listed those locations. There were seven or eight of them uh, that ranged from uh, a location in northern, the northern nation of Mexico, south of Laredo, to Magdalena in New Mexico, uh, to uh, two different cases in the Roswell region, uh, one, it mentioned um, material that had been retrieved in 47, and a live extraterrestrial biological entity that had been retrieved in yet another crash in 1949, obviously none of us knew about. Um, Aztec, New Mexico, uh, locations in Arizona, and so forth. And then it got to a paragraph that said... These extraterrestrial biological entities have manipulated DNA in already evolving primates to create Homo sapien. All questions and mysteries about the evolution of Homo sapiens on this planet have been answered, and this project is closed. And I remember reading those sentences over and over and over again and thinking immediately about the issue of DNA manipulation to create life on this planet, many things that I have been exposed to and coming to your question on October 13th, 2013, why would there be animal mutilations, perhaps not just for a century, but perhaps for hundreds of thousands of years on this planet? Homo sapien is only about 35,000 years years old in the current form, preceding was Neanderthalensis. And so our memory as a current species doesn't go back very far. And that everything that I've been exposed to up to this day is that the animal mutilations in the northern and the southern hemispheres of this planet serve two purposes. One is the harvest of genetic material to be used for a variety of purposes that would include the creation of different kinds of biological containers. The second is for sustenance. That's a scary thought, isn't it? Can you hear me? Yep. Well, I can hear you. I, I, you faded away. I don't know what you just said. No, I just, that's a scary thought. A very, very scary thought for sustenance. Uh, and just, that, well, that, that, scares, that scares the heck out of me when I hear that. I, I try never to communicate 
in whatever form I'm working in from a position of fear because I have literally traveled by myself all over this planet. I have been out in fields by myself uh, excising tissue and fluid and grass and soil from dozens of mutilation sites. Fear is not, for me, realistic in this sense. There is no demonstration by anything in the phenomena that it wants or has wanted to eliminate humans. Mm-hmm. No, that, I, yeah, I understand that. I guess but, but that just, just one working really from... important piece. Every single day, 365 days a year, in every country on this planet except perhaps India, cattle are being killed to eat by humans. Mm-hmm. If we are dealing with intelligences that made humanity and that they have some sort of a monitoring and interacting program that is not in our faces but is perhaps behind the matrix, the fact that they might uh, focus on genetic harvest from animals that we killed to eat may say they are quite intelligent and making distinctions. Well, I think you've opened up um, a whole discussion that I I would really like to pick up on the next time you're with us. And apparently we're going to be doing this uh, later on in the month. Uh, You'll be back with us, I believe, uh, October 27th. Um, So I want to thank you. I think it's the 22nd. um, Well, we'll check that out together, okay? Yeah, Yeah, I think it's October 22nd. That's what I have on my calendar. Okay, we'll check that out, too. In any case, well, I want to thank you very much, Linda, for being with us this evening on The Conspiracy Show. You've uh, you've really um, opened up a whole lot of doors for us uh, and our listeners, too. Check out Earth Files. We certainly will check out Earth Files for you. That's earthfiles.com, Linda Moulton-Hell. Linda, thank you very much for being with us, and we'll talk to you very soon again. Thank you. Linda Moulton-Hell, my goodness. Lots of information there to digest. Uh, This evening has been a pleasure, and I want to thank you all for listening very much. Um, Please check out the Richard Serrett uh, website, richardserrett.com. My name is Victor Bajani. Thank you very much for being with us. Good night. Good evening. My name is Victor Bajani, sitting in for Richard Serrett this evening. He's off on a well-deserved rest for this weekend. And it is my pleasure to man the microphone and take you to places that you've not considered before. And uh, it's uh, indeed a pleasure, and I thank Richard for the opportunity to, uh, to allow me to do this kind of thing with you. Um, before we begin, I would like to welcome one of our new affiliates here to The Conspiracy Show. And uh, I guess uh, maybe that's, it's time to mention KFLD AM 870. Yakima, Washington, to the fold. I think that pretty much uh, gives us approximately, oh, I would think, 20 affiliates that are right across the United States uh, enjoying the, the great entertainment that you can hear every, um, every hour by hour here on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Uh, this evening, we've got a very um, dynamic and very disturbing program to, uh, uh, to present to you. Um, genetically modified food or GMOs, genetically modified um, organisms. We we sit down at the dinner table um, just about every single night or we have breakfast and we consume 
different kinds of food and without much thought behind it. And you go to the grocery store, you pick up broccoli, you pick up uh, your asparagus, you pick up uh, your meat and so on and so forth without too much thought. Uh, we, we take it for granted a lot. And I think that it's something that we need to visit, revisit in ourselves too with the kinds of things that we're ingesting on a daily basis. And when you leave it at that level, it's, it's, it's not too disturbing because not too many of us uh, take it as seriously as we should. But then when you move the corporate level and the kinds of things certain corporations are doing to put these kinds of genetically modified uh, uh, foods on our plate through the grocery stores and, and so on and restaurants, etc., um, it really raises a few issues about the kind of control that corporations have over our lives, our daily lives, every single day of our life. In one way or another, there's a corporate entity, be it media, be it uh, government, uh, be it uh, communications, whatever it might be. Large corporations are having uh, a control over our lives. Uh, I know that uh, w- with regard to uh, things like technology, cell phones, uh, and, and all of these kinds of things, the kinds of control that we have, the contracts that we enter into with some of these communication uh, companies. Um, they have control behind things or of things and with things that we do not see. We don't see into the back rooms. And this evening, we want to try to do a little bit of that, is bring you some information that just might um, enlighten you about the kinds of foods that we're uh, ingesting and the kinds of things that certain corporations are doing to those foods before they even come close to um, being on our plate. And this evening we've got uh, one guest uh, who's going to help us along through that and point out some of the real, um, I guess, problems with the kinds of things corporations are doing. And our guest this evening is Dr. David Carpenter. He's an MD. He's a public health physician whose current position is director of the Institute for Health and Environment at the University of Albany as well as a professor of environmental health sciences within the School of Public Health at the University of Albany. After receiving his MD degree from Harvard Medical School, he chose a career of research in public health. After research positions at the Institute, he came to Albany in 1980 as director of the Wadsworth Center for the largest public health laboratory in the United States. In an effort to build ties with New York State uh, Department of Health and the University of Albany, resulting in the creation of the School of Public Health, a position he held until 1998, when he became the director of the Institute of Health and Environment. So I'd like to welcome to The Conspiracy Show, Dr. David Carpenter. Good evening. Thank you very much. Great to have you with us. And uh, yeah, I, I must say that uh, I, I ran into um, some of your work um, on the on the wonderful documentary that was put together uh, just recently about uh, the world according to Monsanto, in which you uh, you played a role in in, um, in appearing in part of that documentary. And that documentary, uh, the specifics of it were that you were involved in a case in Alabama, Anniston, Alabama, if I recall correctly, where um, there were certain kinds of PCBs that were put into the uh, into the environment, and you were part of that research. Is that correct? That's correct. Anniston, Alabama is uh, the site of one of the two plants operated by Monsanto in the U.S. that manufactured PCBs, and I think uh, those were the major manufacturing sites in all of North America. Uh, they were manufactured in Anniston from 1929 until the early 1970s. And uh, our, the, well, first of all, there were, uh, there was almost no study of the health of the people that lived around the site. 
<clears throat> until a lawsuit uh, was was entered, and uh, actually a series of lawsuits, and I served as an expert witness in many of these, and they documented just enormous health problems of the people that lived near the site, and furthermore, that the magnitude of the health problems were related to the levels of PCBs in their bodies. PCBs, polychlorinated biphenols, were manufactured there. Uh, they were a very useful product. They were an oil, and depending on how heavily chlorinated they were, they would either be sort of like a kitchen oil or they'd be very viscous. And so they were used as hydraulic fluids. They were good electrical insulators, so they were looked. They were used in capacitors. As uh, the, we still have a problem in New York City right now because all the fluorescent lights that haven't been replaced for 20 years still have PCBs in the ballast and the lights, and sometimes they leak and cause problems. But uh, the research problem. The, the lawsuits raised the issue of the problem, and then Senator Shelby of Alabama uh, really forced the federal government to mount a research program studying people in the city. I've been a major part of that. It was operated basically by a consortium of universities, and uh, my role was to study the cardiovascular disease patterns in the residents and uh, rates of hypertension. And uh, so I've I've been in very much involved in that, and actually, just today submitted another manuscript to a scientific journal on some of our results from those studies. Mm -hmm. What is it exactly about PCBs that makes them dangerous uh, to to us? Well, they are known human carcinogens. Uh, they were uh, known to be probable human carcinogens for many years. And last February, the International Agency for Research on Cancer, which is part of the World Health Organization, uh, reviewed the, the evidence and declared them to be known human carcinogens. And I was a member of that panel. The problem with them is that they're, they're fat-soluble substances, and because they're, they have so many chlorines, it's very difficult for our body to destroy them. And therefore, they accumulate primarily in our body fat. But our body fat is in uh, equilibrium with our, our brain, our organs. And when you have this known human carcinogen circulating, uh, it does increase the risk of cancer. And the evidence for that is just overwhelming. But PCBs do many, many other things. Uh, most people know that that children exposed to lead have reduced IQ, but PCBs do exactly the same thing. Uh, they also increase the risk of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. They tend to reduce the function of your thyroid gland, which regulates your metabolism. Uh, they increase the risk of diabetes. They increase the risk of heart disease. So there's there's almost no uh, organ system that's not affected. They uh, suppress the immune system, which is part of the reason why they increase the risk of cancer, but that also increases the risk that one will get an infection. Or if you get an infection, if your immune system is not up to par, 
it will be more serious and more long-lasting than it would have been otherwise. Mm-hmm. So these are very yeah, bad, of course. bad chemicals. In my experience as an educator, I started teaching uh, back in 1969, Doctor, and um, and as as a young educator, um, you know, I had 35, 40 students in front of me, as most teachers did back in those days. And by and large, most of the students, and I don't want to generalize here, but most of the students were, you know, of, of average ability. And, um, and But as I moved through my career, uh, both as a teacher and as an administrator, it was really clear after, oh my goodness, I'm trying to think exactly when it, my first sense started, probably in the early 80s is when I began to see as an educator when I moved into administration, this really strange onslaught of, of children with um, attention, deficit disorder, attention deficit disorders, different kinds of hyperactivity, um, different, an, an onslaught, of a huge onslaught of asthma. Um, and all these things seem to kind of flower at the same time. And I'm trying to figure out, you know, when, when PCBs came onto the scene and even led, uh, I, I suppose, as you, as you alluded to, um, I'm, I'm trying to make a correlation here. It may or may not be a correct correlation, but uh, when these kinds of things are brought into the environment, and I'm not sure if it was you who said it in the, uh, in the documentary, but we all have the PCBs in us. And so when, when did this... What, when would it have really started to, to, to manifest itself? Well, you're absolutely right. We all have measurable amounts of PCBs in our bodies. And the reason is that our food supply is contaminated. Uh, if you eat a hamburger, the fat that's part of that hamburger is going to have some PCBs in it. If you eat a fish, uh, no matter where it's caught, you're going to have some PCBs. And if you eat a fish out of the Great Lakes or out of the St. Lawrence River or out of the Hudson River, they're so contaminated they're not safe to eat. Uh, you know, I think, and this, this will lead into our study, our, our discussion of corporations. Uh, after World War II, we suddenly began to turn to chemicals. There was a lot of advance during World War II in, in the terms of, of fighting the war, But after the war was over, suddenly chemicals were just such a good thing. So we used DDT to kill all of the insects and never thought about the fact that it, like PCBs, stays in our body and has all kinds of adverse effects. Uh, PCBs had been manufactured before that, but they became in widespread use after World War II. And that period in the 50s and 60s and 70s was really a peak time when everybody thought chemicals were just the most wonderful thing in the world, and nobody really asked the question, do they have harmful effects? And and also, do they stay in our bodies? Mm -hmm. Now, uh, you know, we we still have chemicals all over the place. We have chemicals in our personal care products, in our deodorants. Uh, We add antibiotics into our our soaps. And uh, all of these chemicals, many of them have not been studied carefully to determine whether or not they're hazardous. Yeah. And, And so they have potential problems. Of course. We're speaking with Dr. David Carpenter from the University of Albany in New York. And, uh... I hope you'll join us on the other side of the break. My name is Victor Vigiani. Stay with us. 
Welcome back. My name is Victor Vigiani, sitting in for Richard Serrett this evening on The Conspiracy Show. And it is our pleasure to have along with us this evening Dr. David Carpenter from the University of Albany in New York. And we are talking about PCBs and, I guess, corporate behavior in regards to uh, the kinds of things that they let escape into the environment because, as uh, Dr. Carpenter just alluded to, uh, the chemicals at the end of World War II uh, were the apparent savior of, uh, of the industrial um, direction that the planet was going at the time. And from my understanding, uh, Dr. Carpenter, a lot of these corporations, uh, when they began, as far back as 1929, from what I can understand, is they, they began making these kinds of chemicals, and they didn't really do the due the uh, due diligence that they needed to do to first of all find out what they were making and the second of all to to find out what the uh, impact would be on the environment uh, now h- how did this kind of information first of all get set up within these corporations and then again comment with that why do you think some of these corporations literally in, in my information in my research withheld information from the public and the government about what they were making well in all of this legal activity in Anson, Alabama one of my colleagues prepared a full booklet that's entitled What Monsanto Knew. And the question is, at what point in time did Monsanto realize that PCBs were hazardous? And the answer to that was they knew that very, very early when their workers began to show signs of sickness. And some of the early signs were uh, what's called chloracne, which is a skin eruption, that reflects very high exposures. A lot of the diseases caused by the PCBs, however, take years to develop. So uh, it's certainly true that it, at early on they didn't realize the great variety of diseases were caused by the agents. But, number one, the corporations were concerned primarily about their, their bottom line, their profit. And, number two, the government of all countries did not have uh, regulations in place requiring uh, testing of compounds for safety to determine both whether they're persistent in the environment and in the human body and whether they're toxic. Now, compounds like PCBs and DDT are both very persistent in the environment. and They harm wildlife and they're very persistent in our bodies. For both of them, it takes about seven to ten years. If you ate contaminated fish last night for dinner, it would take seven to ten years before half of what you got, if either PCBs or DDT, would be removed from your body. They're that persistent. So as we, as we get older, the concentration of these chemicals tends to get greater mainly because we take them in more rapidly than we can get rid of them. And I guess we're not being told the full story about what we're ingesting and, and what the, the long-term effects are. And we're, we're doing it on a, on a rapidly increasing cycle. And as you say, these things unfold many, many years after. And uh, as you know, some of the, uh, the, the learning dysfunction that I alluded to earlier, uh, it just seems like it's a, geomet- a geometric expansion of these kinds of uh, uh, symptoms of these chemicals. Well, you're absolutely right. And, you know, I really attribute a lot of the failure on that score to our governments. Uh, now, granted, governments are they're, they're political entities, and the corporations that are making money off of these chemicals they produce don't want regulation. 
uh, in the U.S., our Toxic Substance Control Act dates from 1976. And uh, it was that act that actually prohibited the continued manufacture of PCBs. But of the something like 85, 86,000 industrial chemicals that are in use today, only about 300 of them have ever been totally tested. And, you know, there, there's this problem that it's understandable that a corporation wants to make money. That's what they're set up to do. And they have shareholders that want return on their investment. Uh, but they also have an obligation to the public to not produce things that are toxic. And uh, our governments have the very serious obligation to provide oversight and regulation and to require that before a new chemical is, is put into our food or on our bodies or in our market in any way, that we know that it doesn't reduce IQ, it doesn't cause birth defects, it doesn't lead to a greater risk of diabetes, mm-hmm. and all of these things, which uh, often, in, in actually in the majority of cases, our governments do a very poor job at. I think the Canadian government does a better job than the U.S. government, but even the Canadian's process is not as as rigorous as it should be. Yeah, let's let's talk a minute about that because uh, I I've, I have uh, read some information lately that some of these larger corporations and I, I won't get into naming the ones that I'm I think I'm aware of, but they are actually in the business of either having their lawyers or their their corporate officials in one way or another actually write themselves the legislation that's put before the elected representatives to, to consider. Um, have, have you ever run across this any of that? absolutely correct. Uh, you know, and again, the situation in Canada is not quite as bad as it is in mm-hmm. the U.S., but politicians have to have money given to them for, in order to run for office. And so they get money from corporations. They don't get a lot of money from ordinary citizens because ordinary citizens usually don't have a lot of money. But corporations whose profits depend on on sale of something uh, will provide uh, funds to politicians, provide advice to the politicians, and often have their lawyers write draft legislation. Uh, So it becomes a, a system where things... Uh, are done that protect the corporations that fail to protect the public. In in your work, I guess I mean, you you took on this this project with uh, the Alabama situation, and and in uh, having read some of the things uh, on your website, um, what, what kinds of work do you do to um, to try to enlighten the public on this? Well, uh, first. First, what I do is uh, my own research, and I, I have ongoing projects, uh, not only in Anniston, Alabama. I've got a project uh, looking at uh, the Mohawk uh, Reservation at Aquasasne on the Canadian-U.S. border, mm-hmm. where for 20 years, almost 30 years now, we've been studying the effects of PCBs in those persons. Uh, there, the source of PCBs were the aluminum foundries on the St. Lawrence River, run by General Motors, by Alcoa, by Reynolds Metals. They used PCBs as hydraulic fluids, and when they leaked, they washed them down the drain into the rivers. So the St. Lawrence and its tributaries 
have very high concentrations of PCBs in their fish. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and then I have another project in northern Alaska where I look with the uh, native Alaskan population that eats marine mammals, and they, even though they're removed from these sources down in the more temperate regions, these compounds go by the air to the polar regions to come out of the air and then and uh, concentrate in the fat of these marine mammals that are main diets of those people. So I, I start by doing the research that documents in the most rigorous fashion that I can that there are health hazards. And then in addition, I, I try to explain the results of those uh, studies to the public. And many scientists are a little afraid of doing that because often the press will distort what you say and so forth. Uh, another example, I was part of the team a few years ago that looked at contaminants in salmon. And we found that farm salmon, particularly farm salmon from northern Europe, were so full of these persistent chemicals that cause cancer. It included PCBs, it included DDT, a variety of other pesticides and dioxins. And uh, using the the fish consumption advisories that EPA, uh, the U.S. EPA uh, gives, whereby if you know the concentration of one chemical, you can calculate how many meals of fish, a uh, standard-sized meal that you can eat per month without increasing your risk of cancer. And they have other formulas if they're more than one can- cancer-causing agent. We calculated that the fish from northern Europe, you could only safely eat one meal every five months without <laughs> increasing your risk of cancer. So, you know, you get the research results, and if they're hidden in a scientific journal that only other scientists see, it doesn't uh, provide information to the public. So I've tried very hard to uh, to be one of the translators. I, for many years, had a weekly radio show and uh, called The Health Show. Uh, I've written uh, regular articles in a local newspaper. I don't hesitate to go on the radio as with this show to try to explain not only how we get exposed to these chemicals, but what their health effects are and what we can do that would reduce our exposure. It seems like a a really almost incredible or impossible situation because the way technology is moving, these chemicals are getting more and more sophisticated and the corporate, uh, I guess, guess compulsion to put these products on the market and to make a profit, it seems like a never-ending string. Uh, Well, it it is that. It's exactly that. But, uh, you know, the public is not stupid if they're provided with information. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I I think that... uh, the only way we're really going to have government step up to the plate and insist on the regulations that uh, are appropriate is if the public understands that, uh, you know, you're not, you're not uh, dumping on all business. That's not the point. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not trying to shut down corporations just for the sake of shutting down corporations because we all benefit from the products of industry. But it's not inappropriate in any way to demand that uh, that their products that they produce and that they make money on mm-hmm. not be harmful to, 
to the public. Yeah. Well, I think it's something that the media has to has to pick up on because if if it's not something that's an educational process uh, that that occurs on a you know on a frequent basis, uh, you know the general public just literally falls asleep about these kinds of issues because uh, you know we could have issues that are that are brought up in e- each city and town across the United States and Canada, and these things seem to rise and fall like uh, like, like balloons. They go up one day and then they're down the next. So we really don't pay attention to the to the really important things that are going on consistently in our daily lives. And I, I guess, you know, the work that you're, you're doing and the, these kinds of radio programs that, uh, that, that we're providing here uh, provide some sort of backdrop to uh, enlighten people to say, listen, there's something going on and we need to pay attention to it. And, and I suppose really the only way out of this is um, being more demanding of our elected officials. I, I think that's exactly right. That's the, the lever we all have. We all have the vote. We all can... Uh, also inform our elected officials because, you know, they're human like anyone else. They don't have time to uh, read on every subject. And when uh, people become knowledgeable about the dangers of chemicals in our food supply, they really need to insist that our elected officials do everything they can to pass laws that will protect us from harm from, yeah. from chemicals. In a lot of ways, it's like uh, it's like a it's a like a game of darts. It seems like the corporations can uh, can throw a, a dart and 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 hit the the bullseye, you know, nine out of ten times to get exactly the kind of information and, and response from government that they want. But you know, people like you and I and the general public, we can throw fifteen darts at it, and some of the, some of the darts don't even hit the dartboard. They they just ignore the situation, and you really wonder what's going on behind the scenes to motivate corporations and government to do what they do to you know pad the bottom lines i hate to sound so uh, mercenary about it but isn't that in fact kind of what's happening yes that is but you know uh, i think your analogy is a good one that you and i may may throw 15 darts and and some of them may not hit the dartboard but one or two may and uh i think that you know the fact that if we have a whole pile of people throwing 15 darts, even if only one or two mm-hmm. at the target, uh, that's, that's the only way that we're going to get change. Because the general public doesn't have a lot of money. It's the corporations that have the money. And the politicians depend on money. And when someone gives them a lot of money, they feel obligated to assist them. Uh, and, you know, I don't mean to say that all politicians are just bought, but uh, that's part of the real world. So it it is imperative that the general public, first of all, become informed on these issues, and secondly, press their elected representatives to do something about it. Is there any specific process that you've been involved before that's been successful in, in doing and bringing to a head something very specific, other than perhaps the Alabama situation? Well, uh, it's hard to to say. Uh, specific things. I've been very much involved in uh, looking at health effects that people suffer from if they live near a hazardous waste site here in New York State. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have a good registry of uh, hazardous waste sites and what chemicals are in them. And we have also a good hospitalization database so that Mm -hmm. if you go into a hospital, that hospital must report to the state health department every Mm -hmm. disease you have. Well, that's, and so we have demonstrated that if you live by a waste site that contains certain chemicals, and we've focused a lot on PCBs and, and the chlorinated pesticides like DDT, uh, that you get these 
you have a higher chance of having diabetes, heart disease, asthma, respiratory infections. Now, how is that translated to uh, people's health? Well, everybody can't just move away from their home because it's by a hazardous waste site. Okay, I'm going to have to but hold you. But it has you, influenced yeah. the policy of okay. the state. I have to hold you there, uh, Doctor. We're just about ready for our break. And I want to thank you very, very much for being with us this evening. You've, uh, you've brought a whole new uh, perspective to this. And I want to thank you very much. And continued great luck and good luck in, in your, uh, your endeavors. In your thank endeavors. you very much. Okay, take care now, Doctor. Bye now. Well, my goodness, uh, uh, another door opened for us this evening. And I'm hoping that uh, we can continue to open this door a little bit more. And after the break... We will present you with another door uh, that will open your eyes to something that is extremely disturbing. My name is Victor Vigiani, and you're listening to The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Welcome back. My name is Victor Vigiani, and I'm sitting in for Richard Serrett this evening. And uh, once again, I'd like to welcome all of our affiliates to The Conspiracy Show. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Um, Just previously, we were listening to Dr. David Carpenter regarding his experiences with um, PCBs in Alabama and trying to uh, fight the corporate entities that pretty much had their own way with allowing these kinds of things to enter into the environment and uh, disturb the lives of a lot of people. If you've ever seen the uh, documentary, um, uh, The World According to Monsanto, uh, you can pick it up probably on Google someplace on YouTube. Uh, very interesting. It's an educational process all in and of itself. And if if you're a thinking person at all, it will disturb you. It will be very, um, I guess, it'll grab you in a way that kind of makes you think, my goodness, what am I doing? What kinds of foods am I ingesting? And how long will it take those foods to develop into other kinds of things within my own body? And not only my own body, but the body of my children and and uh, you know, the people that come after me. So I'll tell you something. It's, it's sitting here and being educated in this way is not an easy thing to do. But I think we're going to go in another direction completely this evening. And uh, what I like to call brush the fur the other way. And, and in a way, we learn by being disturbed. And this next guest that we have on, I think, will be a kingpin in doing that because I know that he has some very, very strong feelings about the um, GMO situation. And in addition to that, uh, the the dairy industry and how the dairy industry has been affected in a very specific way uh, with respect to um, uh, transgenic kinds of... uh, uh, substances that are injected into the into the kinds of foods that we eat. Um, Peter Hardin started the milkweed in 1979. Um, over three decades, uh, the paper has become the standard for dairy reporting in the United States. And Mr. Hardin brings 30 plus years of experience and contacts in the USA uh, dairy industry to the pages of the milkweed. He and his wife uh, live in in Brooklyn, Wisconsin. And he's here this evening to join us and uh, shed some light on some very interesting things with the FDA and uh, bovine growth hormones. Uh, Welcome to the program, Peter Harden. Good to be here, Victor. Thank you. Can you hear me okay? Just fine. Thank you very much. You're coming through loud and clear. Okay. Yeah. So uh, in res- with respect to our earlier conversation uh, that we had this evening, um, that when, when I picked up the phone and, and spoke with you, um, I could tell by the tone in your voice that uh, the immediacy with how you reacted to my request to be on the show this evening was, uh, was pretty intense, and you seem to have some very strong feelings about this whole issue. 
That's an understatement. Uh, as a as a journalist and a citizen, I have, uh, I, I guess it was in the mid '80s, uh, shortly after the uh, the news of Cornell University and Monsanto developing, you know, being in the developmental process for a a a biotechnology synthetic hormone injected into cows to boost cows' milk production. Uh, I, I, I had a visceral, a visceral early reaction to that in a negative fashion, and I, I haven't seen anything to convince me otherwise since. Well, I, I guess in, in one way, uh, and maybe we should get this issue uh, on the table and off the table quickly, uh, in discussion with some people that I've had over the past couple of weeks, um, and some of them are very doubtful about the, the effects of, uh, of, of GMOs and, and the kinds of things that are creating more of a transgenic world. And the, the benefits that they seem to um, allude to seem to be, in, in a little way, providing a bit of an argument against the kinds of things that I've been hearing. And I just want to balance all that off. And by asking you, are there any benefits to this genetically modified kind of a process that's going on and trying to make foods better, quote-unquote? Uh, how do you feel about that? Well, I would, Victor, to answer that question, I would uh, refer to the crop center, the, the crop sector, and uh, show that in the uh, roughly 15 to 18 years that mainstream agriculture has had access to genetically modified corn and soybeans, we're seeing Mother Nature's ability to uh, uh, respond to new challenges uh, come forth. For example, we're seeing in the case of uh, genetically BT corn, that is corn where a, a chemical that paralyzes the digestive tract of tiny microscopic worms that, that dine on the corn roots, corn rootworms, uh, they have developed uh, resistance uh, to the uh, corn, that type of corn, and now there's major damage coming from corn rootworms in uh, biotech corn plants that have been designed to kill those rootworms. We also have the problem of genetic, uh, pardon me, genetically modified crops that are um, not killed by by the, the commercial uh, commercial herbicide Roundup patented by Monsanto mm-hmm. or glyphosate. Um, the, the there are weeds. There are weeds. I can't tell you how many, but tens upon tens of weeds that have developed uh, resistance to Roundup and glyphosate herbicides, including one one monster of a plant called the giant pigweed. You know what? That, let's let's just after the break, let's get to the yeah. giant pigweed, okay? Okay. Uh, okay. Then we'll just we'll talk about it in a moment. Uh, you're listening to Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. My name is Victor Vigiani. Stay with us. Well, I certainly know why I'm up this late, and we're here to talk to you about a few different things that sometimes elude us. And if you want to check out more of it, I do invite you to go to uh, the Conspiracy Show website. That's uh, Richard Serrett. 
com, and you'll find out uh, past shows and things that are coming up, along with all the hard work that Richard does to put that site together. A very, very interesting and, and dynamic website. And also, while you're at it, you might want to check out Zeland Communications. That's my website. Just Google Zeland Communications, and you will land up with uh, uh, another experience that um, is quite unexpected. This evening, we're speaking with... Uh, uh, Peter Harden, editor of The Milkweed, and we are just on the verge of talking about, uh, Peter, once again, what was the kind of uh, bug you were talking to us about they before? It, they call it giant pigweed is the weed. Okay. And uh, it's primarily manifesting itself down south, and this stuff is so, again, it's developed resistance to the common her- pesticides, her- pardon me, herbicides, and it is so, it, a mature plant of this stuff will produce about half a million seeds, and when mature, the stalk is so rugged that it actually dulls the, uh, the equipment people are trying to, uh, to chop it down with uh, to the point where uh, a practice in the South has been revived, the old hand-hoeing uh, uh, simply to get rid of this stuff, hand hoe it early because that's the only way to get to try to stop its spread in individual fields. So, and beyond the, the you know issues like uh, the pests and the uh, the weeds becoming resistant to the biotechnologies, uh, we also have you know severe questions about the whole soil biota. You know the microscopic life in the soils being uh, set back from its normal status by the overt use of some of these pesticides, such as Roundup. In your, in your studies, I know that you've, um, you've come across a lot of in, uh, information regarding the dairy industry and the, the bovine growth hormone and the Correct. kinds of... Um, first of all, could you just run down some of the reasons why uh, farmers would have any interest at all, other than increased milk production, uh, any interest at all in injecting their animals with this, with this particular hormone? Um, maybe they're sadists. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, before we get into the, can, can we quickly define what this product sure, is? Sure, right. Go ahead. Yeah, it is, it is not sold in commercial, illegally commercially used in Canada. You folks drew a, a tougher line. Mm-hmm. Bovine recombinant bovine growth hormone is a a a uh, biotechnology version of a. Uh, what a natural cow hormone, and uh, the biotech version is has been they're able to reproduce it using E. coli bacteria in a vat batch process. The uh, material is then purified, and uh, a the the common label label use is for the cow the milk cow to be injected once every two weeks with this hormone and the the ostensible gain is according to the companies eight to twelve percent more milk uh down in in your country in your country you have a quota system for dairy farmers and the amount of milk they manage the amount of milk they can market and don't sell much more because of economic penalties down here it's a free-for-all and uh, 
our farmers seem, our dairy farmers seem to respond to economic signals of either good prices or bad prices by mm-hmm. making more milk no matter what. Mm-hmm. So this this technology appeals to some of them, although it was approved originally approved in uh, February of 1994, and over time through consumer complaints uh, about the horm you know milk they didn't want to uh, consume dairy products made from milk of hormone treated cows. Mm-hmm. Uh, we probably see the product used in about 15 percent of U.S. dairy cows. So what does it do to the milk and to the cows themselves? Um, well, it makes more milk. There are some subtle differences in the milk, such as the uh, the the composition and ratios of the short, medium, and long uh, chain fatty acids in in the in the cream. Uh, there are also higher levels of the hormone itself, but most troubling is the is the issue of higher levels of a so-called secondary hormone. IGF-1, which stands for insulin-like growth factor 1, and that hormone is that bodily hormone of bodily production of IGF-1 is spurred by growth hormone levels, and IGF-1 in cows is exactly the same structurally as IGF-1 in humans. IGF-1's uh, function is to circulate to every cell in the body and coordinate cellular function. That's that's a that's a miracle if you think about it. But do we necessarily want more of that stuff in our milk? No. I, I guess. Well, I've heard descriptions of milk having pus in it and things like that. There's some really I, dash it. I wouldn't things going go that far. Oh, there, really? there are. There are uh, legitimate arguments about the, the use of the hormone boosting udder health problems, and uh, the udder's response to health problems is to produce more white cells. I, I wouldn't go quite that far, but uh, some people have. Yeah. I, I also understand that it changes uh, some of the size of the internal organs, like the ovaries and things like that. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. In oh. 1990, I received animal health study files that had been generated by a Monsanto test at its test farm near St. Louis. And uh, what happened was, after milking 80 or so animals for 10 months, the test was over. They killed the animals, had had, had, had broken the animals uh, during the test into four four treatment groups. Uh, and the versus the control group, the three different levels of dosage for the, the, the group, the three groups receiving the actual drug, uh, there was a huge increase in very critical organs such as thyroids, liver, <clears throat> heart, adrenals, kidneys, and ovaries. And, and that, you know, expanded size of uh, these types of organs and glands are regarded by toxicologists as critical early signs that something's wrong. Mm -hmm. And then, for example, on pregnancy, the control group had a 93% pregnancy rate, and the uh, 1X, 3X, and 5X dose level groups, uh, pregnancy rates were in the 50% uh, percentiles. So uh, 
what's here? Here's the bottom line: the hormone accelerates the body's metabolism. There's 30% more blood that flows through the heart of these animals, and their their organs and glands are working overtime. And you can imagine, take the example of a car engine or a tractor engine. There are certain upper limits uh, of performance or RPM to which these engines are are designed. And as with a cow, you push the engines past their design capacity, and something's going to give. Well, I guess that all alludes to the next point, I suppose, is the kind of corporate behavior that's involved in all of this with corporations knowing full well that the kinds of things that they're putting onto the market for farmers and, and, and different individuals involved in the transgenic, uh, I guess, distribution of this, these things, it's... <laughs> It, there's a profit line there that has to be maintained, and what is the balance that's achieved by this? It, the long, the long-term uh, dysfunction that's going on seems to be absolutely deleterious. Yet these corporations seem to have the uh, the permission of government and, and media, and, and and even implicitly through some of the through some of the citizenry, to just to go ahead and do whatever the heck they want. Uh, and it seems yeah. that's that's as, the status quo. As, as one of the original activists opposing uh, recombinant bo- gro- bovine growth hormone. If we had known how the deck was stacked against us early on, we probably wouldn't have bothered because the uh, cow growth hormone was simply the symbolic first hormone, uh, first food biotechnology, major food biotechnology out of the out of the genie's bottle, if you will. And you know, behind it now, we see perhaps eighty to ninety percent of our soybeans and corn in the corn seed in the U.S. is biotech. They've got biotech alfalfa, which is pretty scary because that's a perennial. And uh, uh, just massive, massive changes in our our fundamental foods. Uh, But the cow growth hormone was the first, and the revolving door between, uh, in, in this case, Monsanto and the FDA, and was or I should say Monsanto and also Monsanto remunerated uh, automatons it's it was absolutely shocking but here's here's what's really scary the head of FDA's uh branch that approved bovine growth hormone back in the early 90s Dr. or Michael Taylor he is now our nation's food safety czar implementing a set of draconian new food safety rules that are going to substantially put small and medium farmers and small and medium food processors out of business. Wow. So this... This one yeah. has a long tail that goes all the way to the press. Sure. Um, I hate to use the pun, but you've given us a lot of food for thought this evening in many <laughs> different ways. Um, it, is, it is a very, uh, it's a tormenting kind of thing to know that we're going those kinds of directions without the proper controls. Very quickly, tell us a bit, uh, about, uh, a bit about your website, uh, The Milkweed. Well, uh, I don't pretend to have the most sophisticated website in the world. It, our, our address is www themilkweed.com and um, it, it gives a reflection of what the paper has my paper is a 16 page tabloid published monthly 5,000 subscribers no advertising uh, stri- the paper is strictly supported by, uh, by subscription revenue and we feature 
uh, original reporting, economic analysis, investigative reporting of many factors that go into our modern U.S. dairy industry. Well, it's been a pleasure having you with us this evening. I'm uh, totally enthusiastic about learning more about this because it's a, it's a domain of information that I'm woefully inadequate about, and it's of such importance that it's, it's the educational process that's involved in all of this is uh, because we're ingesting this stuff into our bodies and our children are, are involved in it too. It's something that uh, you really can't take for granted. Do I have 30 seconds more? You certainly do. Yeah, go right ahead. Okay. Probably one of the most damning articles we ever printed was in August of '06, where we showed that the incidence of milk duct tissue cancers in postmenopausal women jumped by approximately 60% from '93, which was the year before RBGH was approved. And, and you know, and, and, and within five years, up to uh, 98 or so, mm-hmm. and those types of cancers, I understand, are very tough because they're fast and deep. Uh, I I just I just think the uh, playing with synthetic hormones in our food supply is a very very dangerous and bad idea. Well, I think that you've pointed that out uh, very well this evening, and I think it's something that, uh, as I said earlier, you've given us food for thought. And I want to thank you very, very much for joining us this evening, uh, Peter, because it's uh, almost something that we have to revisit at another time because you really can't do it in 30 minutes on the radio. Yeah, it would be something that we could uh, definitely look at again. I want to thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Peter Harden, take care now. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, there you have it. My goodness. we hope that you can spend some time thinking about some of the information that you've heard. I know some of the convictions that you've heard this evening, um, we'd hope it wouldn't fall on, on fallow fields. We hope that they have a way of uh, inspiring you to learn more and become more enlightened about our planet Earth. So I want to thank you very much on behalf of Richard Serrett for joining us on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Victor Vigiani. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.